Hassan in Swahili dedicated to all you beautiful people around the world. We say Jumbo. To the Global Mission Podcast. My name is Richard Lewis, your host, as we discuss the issues of worldwide missions and the task of the Great Commission. Well, this morning we have an opportunity to talk with Tim Downs, and Tim uh, has uh, been a missionary for many years uh, in different parts of the world, and uh, so we're just delighted to talk to him about not only his work in Africa, but also in Europe. Tim, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Well, Tim, as I usually do with everybody that I talk with, I want to begin just by uh, you telling your story. Now, you have worked in West Africa. What's the name of the country? Ivory Coast. The Ivory Coast. You were there for several years, and then you moved to Belgium, and then you went to... um, back to the West, uh, West Africa. I think I've got that right. But why don't you tell us the story? Tell us, uh, how did you begin in missions? Yeah, actually, it's a little more complicated than that, even. Okay. Um, you know, I didn't really grow up in a family that was real active in church. We attended, but it wasn't a church that was evangelical. And uh, when I was 12 years old, for the first time, I heard of the gospel. And I was only trusted Christ at 13 almost immediately was exposed to those little hundred page missionary biographies about, you know, the, the famous missionaries of yesteryear, Adnir M. Judson and Hudson Taylor and uh, William Carey, and several others, and just kind of became enamored with the whole idea and began wondering like, hmm, I wonder if I could do that. And so I'm not one of those people that God had to threaten me to get me to be a missionary. <laughs> uh, you know, I longed to be a missionary. Uh, I longed to take the gospel to parts unknown and uh, just never really felt uh, that elusive call, so to speak, even though it was my heart's desire. Uh, I was in business here in the Kansas City area uh, in the printing and publishing business. And uh, I kind of grew up in the business. And then my brother and I were in business together here um, and I was working in our local church. You know, I had the role of assistant pastor, doing music and youth and just all kinds of things. Uh, treated it like a full-time job, and then the business was to fund our ministry. Essentially, uh, was my way the way I always looked at it. Great. And uh, in the spring of 1984, I felt like God was confirming His call to uh, to missions, and then began the idea of where. Uh, looked at a lot of places, and God kept directing us back to Congo, which at the time was Zaire. Uh, you know, and I was reading about it. I'd had Elmer Deal as a missions professor in college. Uh, I am one of those people that thinks if you're going to go to Bible college, you may as well study missions. Uh, you just never know. It's like I have a friend in California that on their back table in their auditorium had passport applications. Like every Christian should have a passport. 
you never know what God yeah. may need you to do. You need a passport. <laughs> and so um, we went back to school. And actually, that's when I met you for the very first time was in the summer of 1984 in Springdale, Arkansas. You were home for a few weeks in the summer and Don Elmore introduced us. And I was going back to school. My wife's parents were attending church there at the time. And um, Really? Well, you know, I don't remember. Obviously. No, of course you don't. Of course I, you don't. I was one more student, one more person of the tens of thousands that missionaries meet. And, uh, but I remember. And anyway. Uh, you know, I was doing research and it just seemed crazy to be thinking about going to Congo. There had been so many missionaries there through the years, and uh, uh, but I just couldn't get away from it. And so we uh, just kind of with the idea that if you want to do what God wants you to do, he's not going to let you end up in the wrong place. And so you just start down that path knowing that he can redirect you at any time. And so uh, we started actually in Congo. We're approved to missionaries to Zaire in 1986, and we're there until 1993 after the second uprising while we were there, and it just became untenable to stay there with children. Uh, I'm always of the opinion, it's like, sure, I am absolutely willing to lay my life down for the gospel, but I don't know that you have the right to make that choice for your children, you know? Very good, yeah. And so, you know, there were no schools, no hospitals, I mean, it was it was just really untenable so there we were uh, kind of a fully funded missionary with nowhere to go which is just an unusual thing people were calling us from all over the world and pastors would stop me on the street and say hey have you considered such and such place a uh, guy offered to pay my way to go to siberia i'm not really sure what that was about <laughs> we knew that we wanted to be in francophone africa uh, we had made a huge investment in studying french both time-wise and financially uh, we went to France for a year and, you know, it's $1,000 a month for language school. And uh, wow. yeah, so we weren't just going to put that on the back shelf. And I was uh, just praying about it and was going through the Baptist Bible Fellowship directory and looking at all the countries in Africa and came across Ivory Coast. And there was one name there, Terry and Janet Jones, uh, with a phone number because we had never had phones in Congo, never dreamt of having a phone in Congo, and uh, called it and he answered, like, hmm, <laughs> unusual, and uh, really, I think it was that afternoon, I just felt like God was affirming the Ivory Coast, and so we moved there in uh, the fall of 93, uh, decided in August to go, moved there in November, just like that, Wow. Uh, very different place mm -hmm. than Congo, I was a kid all the time in Congo. You'd throw a Bible over there, a church will grow. Uh, it's just so fruitful. Uh, you know, the American Baptist, long time ago, over 100 years ago, focused on what they considered the three major harvest fields of the world, the Philippines, Brazil, and Congo. Uh, uh, you mean, they put all their personnel. Kenya was not a part of it? And Not at the time. No. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, of course, Zaire was so large, but I remember reading at one point there were 5,000 missionaries in Congo and 3,000 missionaries in Kenya. Uh, I don't know how they count them, but it just seemed like an extraordinary number to me. Uh, 
Of course, you and I both know they're all concentrated in a couple of places. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I've often thought that I had heard one time there were more missionaries per capita in Kenya than any other place in Africa. But again, you don't really know how to uh, count that. So you arrived in uh, Ivory Coast uh, uh, when again? In 93, the fall of 93. Yeah. And uh, we were, went to work with another missionary the first time, actually that we'd ever worked with another missionary. Terry Jones, Terry and Dan, Janet Jones lived up in the middle of the country in a town called Boake. Um, there's actually, there was before the war there, a uh, missionary boarding school in Boake. So our children went to school there, but they just lived at home, you know, and uh, as well as several other families. But um, that was our first exposure really to uh, very much of Islam. In Congo, it was just a non-issue. Uh, I can only remember one time in Kinshasa, which when we lived there was about six million people, only one time ever seeing a group of Muslims uh, praying. And uh, we arrived in Bwake at night, got up in the morning and we're driving around. I'm like, wow, there are a lot of mosques in this town. And it just hit me of all the questions I had asked Terry about how to prepare that question never came up and come to find out our town was 65 percent muslim and so i became a real serious student of islam real quickly and uh, well the question i have uh you know in senegal where my daughter uh, lives they say that they're muslim but they're uh, cultural muslims they are more animistic uh, know very little about the quran or their faith is that uh, the same way it would be in the uh, ivory coast Yes, to a certain extent, we have all the all the schools of Islam are represented there, you know, so you have this wide variety. Uh, they are not extremists as such in Ivory Coast. Uh, that's starting to change just because of the influence of uh, Al Qaeda just north of us and uh, some other groups as well. But um, yes, you would classify it as folk Islam. You know, it's a kind of a mixture of uh, local beliefs and Islam. Uh, some are, are very devout practitioners. The man who works for us in our home is very devout and uh, has held leadership positions in mosques throughout his adult life. He um, has heard the gospel many, 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 many times and just never has responded. Uh, it's, it's, it's crazy to me. But so, so Go ahead. So how long um, were you there in uh, the uh, Ivory Coast? Uh, we, in, from 93, we moved to Belgium in 2008. And why did you move to um, Belgium? <laughs> That's a good question. Actually, um, I was filling in for a colleague in Botswana because there was a war that started in Ivory Coast in 2002. And uh, we were kind of bouncing around a little bit. We lived in the war zone. Uh, our town, Boake, became the rebel capital. And we lived there among the rebels for about 15 months. Finally, again, just realized it was untenable. Uh, you know, there's, it was just impossible. It was law, completely lawless. Uh, they took my car uh, in the time between March of 03 and September of 04, our house was robbed eight times, you know, uh, never while we were there, but uh, while there were people there. So anyway, we moved uh, 
65 miles south, 110 kilometers south, and uh, just over the front line. But it was still quite tense. You know, I remember Barbara just kind of casually saying one time on our way to a village church near us, uh, you know, I bet not many people had a grenade launcher pointed at their car on the way to church today. <laughs> it, just, it just became part of life. Uh, yeah. When you pulled out of our driveway where there, there were two 50 caliber machine guns pointed at the car, because uh, the UN installed across the road from us. Uh, sounds like a good thing. It's not a good thing. Um, and, you know, became really tense. So we were in and out quite a bit, just kind of trying to keep the stress at bay. Uh, so I was filling in for a colleague in Botswana and got a phone call uh, about this project in Belgium. And I don't know how to explain that. And it's a hard thing to explain, but I knew from that phone call that God was in this. What kind of a, what kind of a project was it? Pardon? What kind of a project was it? Kind of building a network of churches and overseeing a camp ministry. And uh, of course, I'm a church planter. And so that was always kind of on the, the, the agenda as well. And I just knew that God was in it from the very beginning. Um, in retrospect, now that we look back on it, I can see that God was uh, putting us in a position to heal. Uh, we were living under extreme stress and really just didn't realize it. The proverbial frog in the pot, you know, it tensed up while you're there and you just don't notice. Uh, but we had all the, all the symptoms of really acute stress. Uh, and uh, while we were in Botswana, we kind of got a reprieve from that. Botswana is just an amazing, fabulous place. Uh, the ministry is difficult there, but uh, just an amazing place. From there, we went to Belgium in uh, 2008. Actually, went back to Ivory Coast for quite a few months and, and on to Belgium in 2008. And uh, what were you doing? In, while you, well, first of all, how long were you in Belgium? 12 years, which really, really caught us by surprise. Um, that was precipitated by the need to get the church in a position where they could call leadership. And uh, it just took longer. You know, it was my first exposure to Europe. Uh, uh, never again will I ever uh, say anything bad about European missionaries. Uh, not that I really would anyway, but uh, that's, you know, when you live where uh, you can see something happen nearly every day, uh, it's hard to understand why it doesn't happen other places. And so I was very exposed to that. But God moved and God worked, and uh, we were able to... Uh, lead the church in calling uh, our intern, Brendan Penner, uh, as pastor before we left. And we turned the church over. He was ordained there in December, and we turned the church over to him in January. And, okay, so tell us a little bit about the church uh, there in um, Belgium. Uh, I, uh, I visited it when I uh, was with you and uh, the rest of the European missionaries several years ago. Um, so tell me a, a little bit. It's not really. Uh, it, it's it, it's not made up just of Belgians. It's made up of no. uh, different folks. Yeah, it's an international church, uh, and the name actually was Grace International Baptist Church. Twenty-seven nationalities, I think, when we left. I can't remember exactly. I just didn't pay that much attention to that. Uh, it was more of note if a European came. Uh, uh, Western European came because we had people from different countries in Eastern Europe, uh, but we had Italians and Nigerians um, from Cameroon, 
Ghana, uh, Kenya from time to time, uh, just different places. The, uh, so is, was all of it in uh, French or, I mean, if people are living in Belgium, even if they are Kenyan or, or Italian, uh, I'm assuming they're going there and living there, going to school there and learning French. So what was the service in French or was it in uh, English? Actually, because the church was in the north, uh, in the north there are Dutch speakers in Belgium. Um, about two thirds of the country uh, are native Dutch speakers. Uh, we call it Flemish. Uh, it's a Dutch dialect, a little different than actual Dutch. Um, and then in the south, they speak French. So I was a French speaker. And, uh, you know, that opened some doors for us. And I was able to communicate with people who, who were polyglot that uh, were better in French than other languages. But the ministry was all in English. Uh, it was a common language. Almost any Flemish speaker has very good English. Uh, occasionally not, but for the most part they do. And of course, uh, the Africans came from English-speaking countries, uh, the uh, Nigeria, Ghana, uh, Cameroon, different places like that, uh, occasionally you, South African. And you stayed there for, um, you said you just turned it over. So you were there for, did you say 12 or 13 years? 12 years, yeah. And then um, when you turned it over, was the intention to go then back to uh, uh, the Ivory Coast? Yes, I, I've known for quite some time that God was leading us back to Ivory Coast. We've been absent for quite a while. And, you know, it was something one of my mentors always said, you know, to, to be absent on purpose. Uh, and so it gives people opportunities to grow and the ministry opportunity to find its own footing without the missionary. Um, and so we were doing that at the same time, but I was in and out a lot. In the very beginning, I was there uh, several times a year um, for several weeks each time. Uh, then over time, a little bit less. My son was in Ivory Coast uh, for four years and he covered a lot of things that I would have been doing otherwise. But uh, with that, you know, there's some new work to do, looking at opening a couple of new regions and uh, we'll be putting a, a church planning team together. And I'll be teaching some more in the Bible college and different things. So the uh, political situation uh, is obviously better than it was uh, than when you left. You said uh, your son uh, has been working there. So I'm assuming it's, it's relatively safe to return back to West, uh, to uh, Ivory Coast? It's better. Uh, just heated up again recently. In fact, we have an orphanage there that was attacked in the middle of the night and set their kitchen on fire. Uh, just couple of weeks ago, um, burned it to the ground. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, uh, it was based over the elections. Uh, there's always, you know, in third world elections, no, nothing is ever just straightforward. And yeah. So uh, it's a little tense right now, but I assume by the time we finish uh, this furlough uh, next summer that uh, things will have settled down by then. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about the work um, yeah, there. Uh, tell us more about uh, the church plant, the evangelism, the discipleship. What are some of the obstacles or the challenges that, uh, that you face? And um, some of the things that you'd like for someone listening to this, uh, thinking about going to West Africa, uh, what they might expect. Sure. One of the key challenges um, in Ivory Coast anyway, is that children are kind of viewed as an investment. 
in one's future. Uh, it's the children that will take care of you in your old age. And so uh, the ones who are bright, you want to get a good education and get a good job and so that you can, they can help you. Uh, when a person becomes a believer, that's kind of the beginning of things not going well in the family and their family plan. And if a person surrenders to ministry, uh, they're generally completely cut off because there's no future there financially for them. So you face that quite often. Uh, secondly, uh, is probably uh, poor education. I was associated with a man, he, he didn't come up in our ministry, but we became friends that when he started Bible college in another region of the country, he couldn't even read, you know, and he's trying to go to Bible college and really he could barely read. And so by the time he finished, of course he could. And, you know, and he, he made really huge leaps in that, but people always viewed him as kind of ignorant and that was a handicap for him. The, uh, it's not, that's not, certainly not true of everyone. We've had people come through our Bible college that were university graduates and came from good jobs. And most people don't look at the ministry as something that can be bivocational and that's kind of a challenge for us. But the churches grow slowly. Uh, it's not like Congo uh, at all. In Congo, uh, often uh, when we finally launched our first service, there'd be two or 300 people at the very first service. And uh, some of it was just out of curiosity, but the churches grew fast. And in Ivory Coast, uh, partly because of Islam, partly because of the French influence, uh, they don't. And so uh, it's a kind of a bricklaying kind of work. Uh, you know, you just have to stay after it all the time. And, but uh, uh, churches are growing and they all have uh, Ivorian leadership. The uh, a question comes to mind. Uh, you're, it's a French-speaking country. You were talking about the influence of the French. In uh, Senegal, you know, that's the official language, but uh, the tribal language, uh, which is Wolof, is the, uh, I guess, the lingua franca of the population and everyone uh, speaks Wolof. Uh, is that pretty much the same way it is in the uh, Ivory Coast? Do, no, does everyone I wish speak it were. French? I wish it were. Uh, in Congo, we had five regional trade languages. You know, in the east, they spoke Swahili. Where we lived in the capital, we spoke Lingala. Uh, it was also the language of government and the language of the military. And so really, I, there wasn't anywhere I had ever traveled in Congo that I couldn't speak Lingala. Uh, they didn't like it because of, it was the language of the military, but they were happy to speak it with me. Uh, in Ivory Coast, we just don't have that. You know, there are 110 ethnic groups, 110 languages. Uh, the largest language, language group is uh, Baoli. There are 2 million people out of 20, 20 million. And it's, it's just not, there's no one single language that you can communicate with. Now, if you lived in the North and were working pre predominantly among Muslims, you could work in Jula, uh, which is a pretty widespread trade language throughout the region. And I do have colleagues that speak Jula all the time, but for us, it just never uh, would never work. And so all of our churches, they're, they're all cosmopolitan anyway. They're in, only one of them is made up of uh, a single ethnicity. The rest of them are all multi-ethnic. And if you spoke a, a local language, it would exclude people. And so French is the common language.
uh, like I said, there's just this one church where uh, I preach in French and they interpret for me in Vowley. But uh, other than that, I wish it were that way. So how is the uh, how is the church uh, going on, uh, growing? You said you have a Bible college, and so uh, um, you said it's slow, but uh, God is working uh, in that country. Yes, you know the the church that we started in Yamasukuro after we left the war zone. Um, so that was oh, 2004 or five that we began planting that church uh, with a couple that worked with us in Boake, Pastor Elwa and his wife Eunice. Uh, we have a feeding center there and she's the director of the feeding center uh, in a neighborhood that's 90% Muslim, a uh, place called Julabugu. Anyway, um, the church has really done well. Uh, while I've been away, they've bought their own property uh, in another part of the city and uh, are preparing to build a building that uh, will be their own. They've been in rented, a rented facility since the very beginning. And uh, so, you know, that's always healthy to see. Uh, sure. But all of, all of the churches uh, have Ivorian leadership. Uh, they all have an eye to expansion, uh, growing into other areas. The church where our orphanage is, is in Tumuri. It's another place that's almost uh, completely Baoli, which is unusual, but it's in the middle of the country. And uh, the pastor there really has a great vision. His name is Richard and uh, has started uh, another half dozen churches out of that church uh, and uh, hosts classes for the Bible college at his church quite often. We moved from a central location to a modular model a long time ago. And so we moved the classes around and the students go from here to there and usually associated with a new church plant. And so during the day they can help with a new church plant and then take courses in the evening or vice versa. So is it kind of like a, uh, we used to call it TEE, Theological Education by Extension, where it's not a full-blown Bible college where there's resident students. Is it like that? Or do you have, um, well, you said it's modular, so I'm assuming you, you don't have a uh, Bible college campus, that type of thing. Right. No, there's no campus. Uh, part of that is by design. You know, um, we kind of, we work with two guiding rules, really. The first is begin with the end in view. Uh, I don't care how long you are someplace, we're all interim. Uh, mm -hmm. If you stay 30 years, you're still interim and someone else has to follow you. Yeah. Uh, and uh, secondly, is to that whatever we do has to be reproducible. Mm -hmm. It'd be easy to go in, you know, with our education and our money and our ways and our techniques. And that would be easy to do. You know, we could have video projectors and because they're cheap. Uh, but if the next generation can't do that, then you've created a model that can't be reproduced. And so we just don't want people saying, well, you know, if I had a missionary like you had, of course I could do what you did. Uh, and it goes on and on. Well, you know, if my pastor had a missionary like your pastor did, you know, it goes on generation to generation. Sure. And, uh, you know, and ec economists always talk about taking a long view and it's one of the problems with our political world is politicians cannot have a long view. Hmm. Impossible for them. They, ha they all have a short view because they have to be reelected. Right. And so we always have a long view. For me, it's multi-generational. Hmm. You know, I'm looking three or four or five generations ahead as what this will look like, how this will flesh out. 
uh, and I don't want anyone to be able to point back and said, well, you know, of course the missionary had that because, you know, he had all these resources. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think if a Westerner uh, would visit our work, they would not be impressed just because it doesn't look like church looks in the yeah. West. Yeah. Uh, but it's completely indigenous, completely mm-hmm. indigenous. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just one team member of a big team. Yeah, and, you know, oh. they look to me as mentor, but still, I'm just one member. That's great. Someone listening to this podcast, uh, you know, we have people that are interested in uh, different facets of the work, uh, different regions of the world. So uh, let's say someone's uh, interested in West Africa, perhaps uh, Ivory Coast uh, in particular. What are some of the uh, maybe uh, challenges that you have or encouragements or suggestions uh, for them as they uh, move uh, perhaps uh, your part of the world? I'd step back a little further and just say first, um, begin to think globally, begin to engage in what's going on in the world. Uh, You can't get that watching CNN. You know, CNN is about America. Uh, you have to watch Al Jazeera. You have to read other newspapers from other places and just engage in the world. Um, I'm always amazed how when I'm talking to people that they've never even heard of a lot of these places that we go. They don't even have no idea. And so that would be my first, my first encouragement. And of course, uh, ministry involvement is the same all over the world. You just engage. You've got to be involved. But you have to come to grips with the idea like what why are so few people going to these needy places mm. and certainly to the hard places? Mm. The, we need God's very best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We need the people that could do anything where they are mm-hmm. coming to some of the hard places. Sure. During the war in Ivory Coast, the rebels had control of our town. And uh, when I finally realized that uh, we were going to have to leave. I really felt like I was turning the light off in a cave. Mm. You just have to know that you have to be able to answer three questions. Are you willing to do anything anywhere at any time? Mm -hmm. It's always easy to put two of those in line, anything, anywhere, but not just yet, maybe later. (laughs) It's always easy to put two of them, but all three of them. And unless you can, and unless you can answer those affirmatively, you can really never know that you're where God wants you to be. Uh, And Barbara and I give ourselves that test quite often. When we were young and didn't know anything, um, that was easy to say yes. Now we've been to some of these places and I know what that could mean. And I'm like, man, I, you know, I want to be able to say yes. I'm just not sure. uh Of course it can mean some hard things. Yeah. So um, if someone wanted to go to West Africa, um, what would you suggest in terms of preparing? You said that most of the people are uh, Muslims and you're part of the world. So uh, maybe some more suggestions, recommendations as they make their preparation. Yeah, if you're truly, if someone was truly interested in West Africa, certainly in Francophone West Africa, uh, you have to learn to speak French. Uh, You can't do, probably could do that there, but it's not best to do it there. Going to France helps you understand the governmental system, uh, things that don't even exist in America. And uh, you know, if if it's a British listener or an English speaker from another part of the world, uh, there's just things about France that are particular. And because Ivory Coast was a colony, 
you need to learn those things. Hmm. I would also begin uh, getting involved in the study of Islam. Uh, I actually, I have a book on Amazon that's a topical guide to the Quran that I produced uh, quite a few years ago uh, for a course that I was teaching on Islam and it goes subject by subject through it. It's called a topical guide to the, to the Quran. Okay. And uh, just to become exposed to it, it's never a good idea, in my opinion, for Christians to quote the Quran to Muslims. You know, just know how you would feel if they're quoting the Bible to you, mm -hmm. you know, and probably not interpreting it correctly. Mm -hmm. right. but, um, so those, you know, those are some very basic things, fundamental things that could get someone started down the right path. But just being open to uh, multicultural environments, uh, if you live someplace where there's an African church, uh, which like there is in Kansas City, there's a Swahili speaking church here in town hmm. that uh, is both French speaking, English speaking and Swahili speaking. Uh, it's good, it's good exposure, get involved with international students. Great. Well, listen, uh, Tim, I appreciate uh, uh, some of the insights that you're giving. Before we wrap this up, maybe uh, if you have something else that you would like to maybe encourage our listeners, uh, uh, feel free to do that. Maybe there's some other thoughts or um, something burning in your heart that you would like to share. Something that's always on my heart. Um, a question you have to ask yourself is why are 90% of Christian workers working among 10% of the world? Is it out of convenience? There has to be an answer to that. Uh, how is it that there are countries that are 99.99% Muslim and people aren't seriously looking at going there? Mm -hmm. I, I don't understand. If I had 50 lives, I could place them in two minutes. Right. And uh, not one of them would be in America. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, if I had 100 lives, okay, I might, might put a few of them here. But well, I know there are needs in America. There's no question about that. But there's no comparison. Well, no comparison. you know the, the problem with us missionaries. We've got to have we've got to have God's best going to the hard places. The problem with us missionaries, we we do have a very strong bias in that area, and <laughs> we do. Uh, so uh, you're, we do. you're 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 speaking to the choir, at least the choir that uh, uh, serving cross culturally. Well, that's great, uh, Tim, and I uh, thank you for your time and. Uh, I pray for you and Barbara as you uh, finish out your time here. Hopefully, one of these days, uh, the world will open up and uh, we can uh, get back uh, to where the Lord has called us to serve. And Thank you. Uh, I appreciate your time and your ministry and your work. So uh, God bless you, and we'll hopefully be talking to you again sometime in the future. Thank you. God bless. You too. Well, I told my wife the other day, if no one else gets anything out of these podcasts, I certainly do. Listening to guys like Tim Downs and other people we have interviewed is encouraging and inspiring. And like Tim, if I had 100 lives to live, they would be serving somewhere in this vast world to take the gospel to those who have never heard the name of Christ Jesus. These weekly podcasts are like a class in missions with information you will probably never hear at a missions conference or through a missionary prayer letter. I hope you're sharing these interviews with others. Our website again is lewis-training.com. If we can be a help to you, your mission organization, or missionaries on the field, please contact us. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Wanna means hello, Mr. Swahili Nirahisi. It's no tongue twister.
no problem. Welcome friend, it's Karibu Rafiki. Let's have some chai with lots of iliki. No problem. Hakuna matata. Hakuna matata means there's no problem. Simba is lion and that's our emblem. No problem. The drums that we play, we call them goma. No problem. Kwaherini Rafiki means goodbye friends. Yibo Imekusha, this is where the song ends. No problem. So long friends, Kwaherini Rafiki. God bless you. Mungu wa wabariki. No problem.